On this week's edition of the Bias Buzz, Don is joined by Tommy Binion from the Heritage Foundation. The majority of this episode is focused on what transpired in Charlottesville and what impact it has on the nation's history moving forward. As always, don't forget to follow Accuracy in Media on all forms of social media to stay up to date on media bias. Thanks, folks. Now here's Don and Tommy. Welcome to the Bias Buzz. I'm Don Irvine, and he's Tommy Binion, my special guest host today. You are the uh, director of Congressional and what is it, uh, Executive Relations at Heritage? Executive Branch it, Relations. Executive it, it, Branch it, Relations. Okay. Just um, means I work with the Congress and and I work with the the uh, Trump administration. Okay, you got a little bit of a Southern twang there. So you're not not quite from here. No, I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I went to school at Wake Forest in North Carolina. Go Deeks. Uh, and 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 now I make my home here in Virginia, just outside of Washington. So you're still part of the South. Absolutely. <laughs> and interesting times that we've got too. All right. So we're going to start off today talking about Barcelona. I mean, that obviously was something that just popped up on our screen, and it's going to feed into a lot of other things we talk about today. Um, terrible attack uh, yesterday. The death toll. The last time I saw it was up to 14. Uh, there's what a hundred or more injured so that death toll probably will rise we'll have to see we hope that it won't Um, but you know it's it's one of those attacks once again in Europe uh, using a vehicle and going straight at you know where tourists and uh, high population centers uh, a very easy target in a lot of ways I mean what do you think about all this going well it's it's ISIS they're taking credit for it this morning and i don't know if that means that they're they inspired the attack or they coordinated it you know there's some attacks are are inspired by their online publications and, and some they have direct responsibility for it's definitely a method that they're um interested in using it's um it's gruesome they're they're targeting our, our us westerners our soft targets uh, on purpose. Terrorism, after all, that's meant to kill as many of us as possible, but it's meant to scare us, to get us to alter our way of life. And, and that's why they target these, these soft targets. They want us to be scared. Next time we're walking down a sidewalk, um, that's the evil that is ISIS. That's the evil that we're fighting. Um, and uh, our heart goes out to the victims, obviously, but our reaction at this point is less fear and more anger for our enemy. Yeah, I think you make a good point there, too. I mean, these are soft targets, and there are plenty of them. I mean, we have plenty of them in the U.S., but it seems that the concentration right now is is in Europe. Uh, And I was trying to think when I first saw this yesterday, I thought, you know, it's... uh, You know, Barcelona is a big tourist attraction area. Uh, That was the last stop on the cruise that um, I took with my wife a couple of years ago. It's a wonderful city, lots of things to see and do. And there is this, there is these, there's a shopping area. I couldn't remember for sure whether or not I'd actually been in this Los Rambles area or not. But, you know, once again, it, because of the no- high number of just, you know, citizens and tourists in there, it is just such easy prey for them. And you know, when you talk about, yeah, is it d- directed exactly or is it inspired? That's a really good question about that. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, personally for me, when I see ISIS claiming responsibility, I kind of wonder, it's like, well, are they doing it because it was successful and they want to claim credit for it, whether or not it's inspired or directed by them, you know, they had direct links to it? Um, you know, if, if a terrorist attack was foiled, would they say, you know, they, would they just stay silent? And they say, you know, no, no one ever hears about that. Um, it does bring up an interesting question on that, you know, in conjunction with this thing, too, is that I guess these, they, the police, they killed five people wearing uh, fake suicide vests. So there was a follow-up on this. And the other thing that is kind of uh, disturbing or potentially disturbing is that there's a report out that says that the U.S. warned the Spanish about this attack, about a potential attack two months ago. But these are all, these are also a little bit tricky. You know, it's like if you get a warning, how much, what do you do? How do you react to that? What do you do? This is a very complex issue, I think. Yeah, I think the, the big fear about what's happening here in terms of how it comes to be that these attacks are happening is that there are um, 
ISIS fighters going to the caliphate, and we're winning in the caliphate. We've gone from 30,000 or 35,000 ISIS fighters there in and around Raqqa to somewhere closer to 15,000. And so the big fear is that those fighters, um, thanks to the lax immigration policies in Western Europe, are either going to Western Europe or returning home to Western Europe um, and carrying out these attacks. So as we have more success in the caliphate, they're going to get more desperate and they're going to get more spread out. This is kind of what happened with al-Qaeda. We saw splinter groups form um, in Africa, in Europe. Uh, and so the big fear here is that that's what's happened here. Um, and you're right. It, you know, it's, um, it's a soft target. There, it, it's a tricky thing to monitor. We, we cannot harden all of our targets. We can't do what we did in airports in the U.S. We can't do that for every movie theater and every soccer stadium and every you know, crowded, crowded boardwalk in, in a tourist area. Um, but but we haven't had very many. We've had some. We haven't had very many of these attacks in the United States. We have foiled um, the Heritage Foundation. We're tracking this. Uh, we track every um, foiled terror plot in the United States. We're somewhere in the mid-70s, maybe low 80s at this point since 9-11 of terrorist plots that we have been able to foil. Our intelligence um, agencies are extraordinarily capable um, and they have been keeping us safe in ways that we don't hear about on the news, and so thank God for that. Yeah, I mean, I think we're good. You know, we're good with that. You know, one of the things that, as I talk about this too, is that it's interesting. Like in London, I mean, London is, has had been attacked multiple times, um, and I think their I think their intelligence is pretty darn good, and and they're heavily, uh, you know, monitored in some. So I mean, they're tons of cameras you know in london you know and things like this and yet you can't you can't stop this because once again it boils down how you can't you can't take a soft target and make it a hard target it just is impossible to do anybody who's been in london or you've been any of these european cities where where they you know rely on tourists you can't do that uh you know you, there's only so much you can do but let me ask you this question and maybe this is you know a little bit beyond do you think, you know, if you compare, say, London to what just happened here in Barcelona, um, do you think that London is still going to be more of a target? I mean, London seems to have a bigger issue with a Muslim population than, say, Spain overall, or or does Spain treat the Muslim population that is in Spain better than, you know, than they do, say, in Great Britain? You know, once again, is this another one of those tricky little things to kind of go right. through? Yeah, I'm not sure that... Um ISIS makes much of a distinction between Western democracies. I think they hate all of us. Uh, right. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's any amount of, of nice treatment um, towards uh, Muslims that Spain can do to lessen the fact that they are an ISIS target because they are a Western democracy. Um, one, of the th one of the things that we can watch out for um, isn't necessarily the country or the city that they're targeting, but the methods. Um, this car or van or bus attack method um, is becoming popularized to some extent. ISIS is certainly um, encouraging their followers to do this. Um, and so that's, uh, that's a fear of mine is that, that you know, they, they, they repeat their methods over and over again. Um, a new method that's emerged uh, is the idea that they would attack our rail transport in the United States. Um, not One, because we don't have as tight a security in our train stations, but two, because they think that they can get in and derail our trains. That they, I think I was listening to a radio show. There's actually a description of a tool that a would-be terrorist could build to put on the tracks to derail our trains. Um, so in addition to the method that we've seen used, um, they're trying to find new methods and softer targets uh, all the time. So I, I'm paying attention to, yes, the city and the country, but, but more so the method. I think that's a good, that's a great uh, point there, too, because, you know, there, the vehicular attack, there's been, I don't know, seven, eight, nine in Europe, you know, just this year alone. 
And why is that? Because it works. I mean, this, because once again, over, I don't want to overemphasize the soft target, but when it's successful, you're going to continue using it until somebody stops you with that, and then you'll find the next one. But you develop the secondary method so that once the first one, they finally figure that out, if they can, then you've got, you're not just stopped and dead in your tracks. You now move on for something else. Rail system, yeah, definitely. Anybody who's ridden, whether or not it is a, a subway train, a light rail, you know, or just the, just the Amtrak here in the United States, or just our cargo, just all the freight that goes on. If you think about it, you know, we have how many thousands and thousands and thousands of miles of rail track all over the country? It's it's not monitored really. It's not it's not under any security. It wouldn't be hard for somebody to just do you know damage you know and derail a train if they really really wanted to, um, yeah. Because that'd be a lot easier than trying to figure out how to do it in a train station where if they start amping up the security, you know, then that becomes a much tougher place to go. So the very you know really good points. Now I want to I want to lead that into this whole Barcelona thing because the the other part of it is is that you know we saw. Uh, you know, Wolf Blitzer, and I think there probably were some others yesterday that were wondering about, you know, the of, of Barcelona and the comparison to Charlottesville. And, and we had, there was even, uh, you know, Fox News Research uh, Twitter account tweeted out, uh, you know, a list of all the vehicular attacks in Europe. Uh, and then they came under heavy fire from the left yesterday because they left out Charlottesville. But they were only focusing on Europe. Everything in there was a, either European flag or the British flag. Or, you know, the left, they kind of they just that knee-jerk reaction. They kind of missed it. But what, you know, just because, just because this, this, this poor girl got killed by a vehicle by this neo-Nazi guy. All of a sudden, you're going to have. This is supposed to be equated to what just happened in Barcelona. What happens in Eastern Europe? In Europe, with these uh, terrorist attacks. Well, it's it's the same style of attack. So you can see how they got there to draw the comparison. Uh, the president said you can call it terrorism. You can call it murder. Uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and now I'm speaking about Charlottesville, he said you could call it terrorism. Um, I think um, ISIS is a global threat to our way of life. Um, I think the neo-Nazis that were on display in Charlottesville are disgusting, but I think um, they're, they are not this, uh, a global threat the same way ISIS is. Uh, so there is a huge distinction there. We're talking about um, two different enemies, two different styles of enemies in our way of life. I, I don't want to um, elevate one over the other because we're, we are talking about cold-blooded murder in order to, um, you know, enact fear in the rest of us. That, that, that's the case in, in both instances. But I don't want to compare them either because they're two very different things. Yeah. Let me ask you about this, too. I mean, I was interviewed just a few days ago um, by a guy who works for Sinclair Broadcasting. He basically does the local uh, website, you know, writes stuff for the local website, WJLA. But he had an interesting question when he called me, and that was about the media coverage of these type of events here in the States in terms of have we... Are, you know, is the media, are we going too far? The media, is the media going too far in covering the alt-right, as I'll, I'll use that terminology? Um, and that, you know, they're, are they thriving on that to get their message across? If we, if we didn't pay as much attention, because that was how I kind of felt. It's like, look, you know, they're not that big a group. But, but you know, you give them enough attention, and then other people will be drawn to it. And I just think it kind of fans the flames, and then the liberals get all excited about it. And it's, I just think it gets into this fever pitch. And it's out of proportion to me is that this is not a group that's going to have a major effect on any policy or anything like that. But they're getting kind of outsized media attention. They're getting what they want. Oh, yeah, Which exactly. is attention. Um, it, the media decided that this was a story that fit that fit their narrative. Um, this was a story that now now I, there was a cold-blooded murder, and I don't blame them for covering that. But they were covering Charlottesville before that happened um, because they think stories that involve race um, will drive ratings, and 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 you know. They have overblown, you're right, the size of the alt-right. We're not talking about 
a significant portion. We, you know, we don't have a uh, as big of a race problem in this country as the news would have us believe. Uh, the you know they 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 have um, overblown it, made it seem like you know the alt right is this movement that's gaining steam and 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 is going to take over our politics. That's just not true. That's a narrative they like to put on TV, but it's not true. Right, and and it fits what for me in my mind has been you know ever since uh, Trump was elected. Uh, and then he took office, a very anti-Trump narrative that the media, you know, the, if they're, they're looking for those opportunities, I think, to, to tie the two together. I mean, you know, when you, when you talk, if you try to blame Trump for what happened in Charlottesville, this is, to me, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's a ridiculous notion that you're going to tie the president to, to this. It's shameful. It is. It is. It, it, and they, they right. They, the media should be ashamed of themselves. But, you know, it does seem like the media, but and particularly the liberals, they love the race issue. They, they play that up far more than anything else. They, they love to throw out that race card. I don't know how many times over the last few years we keep seeing that race card pop up and you're like, what, where did that happen? Well, you know, why is that happening? What is the relevance in this case for that to be made? Uh, you know, there's a lot of cases I think where people can say that if anybody or a bunch of racists, is a lot of the a lot of the liberal Democrats are more racist than a lot of the Republicans or certainly cer- certainly that's true. Um, the, the Democrat Party is the party of slavery. They're the party of the Ku Klux Klan. Um, yeah, I want to make one other point here, and that's that um, it the left started this movement of taking down Confederate statues. Uh, I think it was two years ago when we had the shooting in uh, South Carolina. It was a tragedy. Um, Nikki Haley took down the Confederate flag um, at the South Carolina State House, and then the Democrats noticed that this was a divisive issue on the right. Uh, they thought that, hey, there's some people on the right that will um, want to keep our history intact and they'll defend this Confederate imagery, so let's keep going on this. So what happened, What you saw was, uh, maybe our listeners will remember, maybe they won't, it, that summer in Congress, the Democrats had an amendment to every appropriations bill, every spending bill that was moving, and they were able to gum up the works on the appropriations process for close to four months. They completely halted progress in the Congress over this one Confederate flag issue. I, I think that, that this Confederate statue movement that started uh, long before this weekend, and, and this weekend was part of it, um, is chosen by the left not because they deeply care about it, although I'm sure some of them do, but because they think it, it leads to this fever pitch that you talked about. One of the, Nancy Pelosi is one of the loudest voices about the Confederate statues in the Capitol right now. She was speaker. She was in charge of the administration of that building for a long time and didn't do anything about it. Yeah, no, that's a great point right there because how many times have we seen Pelosi, you know, talk about things that she wants the Republicans to do or the, you know, the White House to do, and yet she did absolutely nothing when she was in charge and had the opportunity to move those things forward. So, I mean, hypocrisy rules supreme with her and the Democrats. But, you know, this whole Confederate, you know, statue thing, monument thing, it's really, it's really gotten out of hand. I mean, I, you know, President Trump has been, uh, he's been raked over the coals for the statements that he's made about Charlottesville. You know, he, he, he says, you know, some of these monuments are beautiful monuments. I mean, you know, the media is just, you know, they, they just pounce. They're ready to pounce. They're ready, every word, they're ready just to jump on him for all of this, take it out of context and say, look, you know, as much as you and I both talk about, you know, it was disgusting what happened in Charlottesville. It was a tragedy. It was tragic. We don't, we don't endorse anything that happened down there whatsoever. Uh, on the other hand, it wasn't all the, quote, old rights fault in that sense. You know, there there is blame to go around. But, boy, you know, he, you know Trump makes a, he alludes to that. And, you know, the liberals, the left, the media, they all go crazy because they're like, oh, how can you make any kind of you know, equivocate with that? You know, Trump comes out and he says there's an alt left and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, how can you what is alt left? You know, what, that doesn't exist. You know, there's no it's unbelievable the reaction 
from the other side about all of this? It is unbelievable. Um, they, they, they are waiting every time Trump says something. They've got, I think, probably a war room in every media studio deciding how they're going to twist it and 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 what they're going to say he meant. You know, he says something completely normal, and now you've got you know twenty liberal brainiacs who just graduated from college all brainstorming um, about you know. <laughs> What can we say he meant by this? Um, the other thing about this is there is a comparison on the left. President Trump may have invented the word alt-left. I'm not sure. But Black Lives Matter is a violent, hateful group. Um, that is the comparison, I think, to the violent, hateful groups that were on display in Charlottesville. Um, the Black Lives Matter led to the killing of five cops in Dallas. Um, I would like to see, and, and, and I'm not sure exactly what President Obama said in the wake of that, but certainly the reaction to it from the press was nowhere near the reaction to what President Trump said uh, Saturday and Monday. I'd like to see a comparison of those two things. I, I, I think um, to the extent that evil and hatred and violence exist among us, uh, it ought to be condemned equally. Uh, and so there's a standard that President Trump's going to be held to. Let's go back and hold President Obama to that standard. Or uh, let's all be united in support of the office of the presidency. Right. No, no, no. That's 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 very true. I mean, the the, the BLM thing, you know, you, you just have to look at that. You mentioned the police officers killed. But the, they were they're very violent, you know, very militant in what they were doing. And yet, there was a there was a general embrace of what they were doing. Uh, you know, and they thought, well, this is this is fine because they're fighting racism, they're fighting all these things, they're fighting police brutality. You can go on and create a, a long, long list of things that were going on in there. But you know, also to your point about this war, this potential war room, you know, of the, you know them waiting to to answer back and things like that. And that's part of the thing that that I've been saying for months. Uh, in terms of what I think is why we have, why the president you know, and the White House have this kind of uh, rocky relationship with the press, because the press is up to me is upset that you know they're not being allowed to interpret what the what the White House and the president is saying. The president and the White House are basically they're coming out, and, you know, and whether or not you agree with uh, Trump's all his uh, tweets and everything like that. You know, he says what he thinks, regardless, and and it's a it's a it's a brand new world. It you know it, it upsets the apple cart and the status quo for the liberal media, and they're like, wait a minute, we're not the gatekeeper anymore. You know, that's that horrors for them that they can't control that message. Well, they they abused that power when they were the gatekeeper, and that's why President Trump values forums like Twitter so much. He can speak directly to people. Media doesn't get to um, splice what he says. They don't get to uh, put, you know, uh, put their own context to it. Um, he can go out there and, and in forums like direct to camera, which, you know, I, I think he's very good at. Uh, people say he looked unhinged in that press conference. I think he's very charismatic and persuasive in direct to the camera because he's talking. He's not giving an interview where a reporter gets to choose which quotes to repeat. Uh, I think he values those forums for that reason. And you're right. The media is unhappy about it, um, but they abused that power when they had it. Yeah. And I think, you know, when we talk about the statues, I mean, he, you know, he got they've been the media's been on his case about uh, talking about the, the statues, not just, you know, they were, there's some beautiful statues and monuments, but also uh, to the effect that, you know, where does this go? How far are we going to go? Are we going to go to Washington and others? And we're seeing that. I mean, we're, we're seeing calls about the, you know, the, about the Jefferson Memorial, the Lincoln Memorial. We're, you know, there was an article somebody put out about, you know, Mount Rushmore. I mean, this is just getting insane, you know. But I did, I did have to chuckle, though, you know, at, at terms of like, okay, so, you know, my mind, I was questioning, well, what about our currency? 
does that mean everybody on the left is going to tear up their $20 bills or or whatever their you know their money are they going to send it back you know we'll take that money for them if they don't want it. if they think it's all racist and all bunch of slave owners and slave masters I'll take your money fine you know <laughs> what is this sometimes the insanity on the left outpaces even the war room where they're trying to twist President <laughs> Trump's words so the immediate reaction from the media when he said what's next Jefferson and Washington was to dismiss that and then three days later the insanity on the left they've outpaced the media yes they're calling for Washington and Jefferson but they've skipped that they they burned a Lincoln statue in Chicago was it yesterday yeah just um, you know they, they they burned a peace statue on accident thinking it was a Confederate statue I think that was in Atlanta <laughs> uh, you know they they they've skipped Washington and Jefferson and gone straight for Lincoln it's um, it's insanity and uh, what one point I saw made on Twitter I, I, I forget who made it so if whoever made this point is listening I apologize I'm about to um, plagiarize a really good point I think you made which is the more calls for Washington and Jefferson statues to come down are made I think that means the less Confederate statues that come down because the the you know the uh, the stronger they play their hand, the more likely it is that they'll overplay their hand, and and um, people will see this for what it is: insanity. Okay, so you know, so you're 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 born and bred in the South, and so you definitely probably have opinions about all of these things going on. Give you a, a good perspective on these kinds of things. Now, you know. I was born in D.C. I was raised in Maryland. That's all I've known. But I will admit, for whatever strange reason, when I was a kid, we uh, we would when we played these Civil War games, and I and I love this. I love the Civil War and the history of the Civil War. Is that I fell in love as a child with the Confederacy. Bizarre for me, I think. But especially since I'm half Asian. On top of that, but you know the thing is, is that when I, I see all this. You know, wrought up emotion, all these things, all this, all this conversation about all these Confederate statues and monuments, and you know, I never really thought about it, but I really don't. I really never paid much attention to most of the statues and monuments, uh, you know, except like the big ones. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, those types of things, the Washington Monument. You know, those are big national type of things, but. You know, we have lots of them here, and we have lots of things in D.C. with lots of generals and things like that. I haven't visited most of them. I don't really think about them. I mean, how many people in the U.S. On, in general have really paid attention to a lot of these things overall? It seems like we're, you know, we're, we're taking down these things that most people— I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in Maryland. Maryland has a Republican governor. And so now, you know, he's removed the statue of, uh, of Roger Taney off the state capitol grounds and things like that. Uh, Baltimore removed, you know, four Confederate statues, and they're now in some storage lot. They did that overnight. I think a lot of this now is happening overnight after what happened in New Orleans, all the, all the things that were when they were removing them down there. But have... You know, is this has this just been blown out of proportion as well? Is that pe most people hadn't really paid that much attention to them? I mean, the Southern Poverty Law Center, you know, has, has identified a ton of these things all over the country. Are we really going to remove all of them? Well, the the big question that nobody has really answered is why now. Yeah. That's sort of what's underlying the point about Nancy Pelosi. Why is this all of a sudden an issue this week? What, why did the statues have to come down Tuesday night at midnight in Baltimore and last night at midnight in Annapolis? Um, it, it doesn't make sense. Why now? To your question about me being raised in the South, um, I think that it, because of the history there, uh, teachers and parents um, are very careful to teach their children about what happened. Um, to teach them of all the horrors uh, and the scourge that is slavery, um, to give that context to the Confederate monuments. You know, I, I didn't pay that much attention to them either. There, there's a place in Atlanta called Stone Mountain, and it's like the southern version of Mount Rushmore. There's some Confederate um, war generals etched in stone on this big mountain, and, you know, they do light shows there and things. Um, that didn't have, you know, that, that, that didn't represent for anybody that went there 
um, anything to do with slavery or the Confederacy. It, 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 it wasn't on the, you know, it, it wasn't part of the conversation when you would go to Stone Mountain. Um, you know, you can take the monuments for what they are. You can take them for a reminder of our history. You can say, let's add context to them so that everybody can know, look, they're, you know, these are people who defended slavery, who fought a war over it. Um, one of the things that I like thinking about them the most is as a union, when, when the union won and the United States was united again, they didn't treat the South like occupied territory. They didn't um, erase all um, references to the Confederacy. They didn't. They 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 participated in Reconstruction. Both Union war generals and Confederate war generals participated in Reconstruction. Um, the United States allowed the South to, um, in some ways. Um, retain some of those symbols of the Confederacy as a symbol that we were united. It wasn't that the South would be just an occupied territory of the North. That's an important piece of our history. Um, and so the fact that those Confederate statues remain is, is in some ways a reminder of that. So, um, you know, as a person from the South, the only thing I remember about when I would talk with my parents and teachers about the Confederacy was they they would try so hard to get it accurate and to get it right and to give the context. Uh, maybe we don't get that throughout the country. I was only raised in one place, so yeah. I'm not sure, but that, that was my experience. Yeah, you know, and the thing, too, I think that people are don't realize or at least forgetting the majority of the people that because this has become such an emotional issue. And, you know, you make a good point about, like, why now? It's just that taking down these monuments does not erase the history. I mean, this history is still there. And so, you know, and I agree in general with the, with the arguments that are saying, look, you know, it may be a painful part of our history in a lot of ways, but you just can't, taking down the monuments doesn't erase it. And, and by, you know, shouldn't we be learning from the things from history to, so that we don't repeat mistakes and, and learn more about these things? And I think context is really important. Context is left out of so much in today's world. You know, there's be, partially because the social media, you, everything is a very knee jerk reaction to everything that happens. But, you know, yeah, you know, if, if you can say make a statement, but a lot of times, if you don't have a proper context, you will be misconstrued. There will be things that will be, that will come off not the way you intended it to. But yeah, I, I think I think the you know the whole history of the South and the Confederacy, there just isn't enough context there. There there just seems to be these these you know these these statements issued really by the liberals by the left. It's A B C, and that's all it is. Yeah, you know. Um Slavery is, is a terrible part of our history. Um, it's not unique to American history. Um, it's part of global history, I think. But we ended it. Right. Um, we can be proud of the fact that the United States ended slavery. Um, you know, I watched that video of the students tearing down the Confederate monument in Durham. You know, they, oh, yeah, they, they, they put the rope monument. around yeah. Um, and then afterwards, they went up and they spit on it and they kicked it. It looked like they were breaking their feet because it looked like a hard metal statue and they were kicking it hard. But you could see they they really hated this statue. And I wondered to myself, um, is it just that they want to feel superior to these people that have statues? You know, they want to feel like I, I don't hold slaves. I, I live in this part. But. We have our own problems in today's society, um, and uh, we we have work to do. We can we can um, focus on the ways that we can improve our society and quit focusing on on the ways that we're superior to those that came before us. There was so much hate in their body language towards that person. It was almost. Uh, it, it didn't have anything to do with uh, what it represented to African Americans in this country, but more just how much they wanted to express that they were that they hated this statue. It was a really interesting video. Yeah, and I, and I don't. I would I would tend to believe that those people there had no idea 
who the person was. And they were, you know, I mean, they didn't know any of the history behind the person. It was just a statue that represented the Confederacy, that type of a thing. And you got to take it down. It'd been up there for what over a hundred years right. or something like that. You know, it it just seems that we've just gone so far with this. But I think that's I think you're right too. Is that you know, we're getting bogged down with all, with this. This is not what we need to be concentrating on in this country. We have got bigger issues and we're just getting really, really bogged down with all of this. And, and, the, and you know, in the media, as I said before, I mean, they, they, they're going along this path and this narrative and they keep whipping it up. It's like, you know, we have, a, we have a lot of other things we really ought to be solving here. Why are we spending so much time on this? That, you couldn't be more right. There is work to be done, maybe. And, I, you know, maybe one of the, the, the things that the left sees in this is the ability to distract from Trump's agenda. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's it, because, uh, you know, I won't I won't say that Trump's agenda in the big, big sense is is winning the way that he would say it was winning. But he's had he's had some victories along the way. And even though the polls will say, you know, he's his you know, his approval rating is pretty low and things like that. And they keep trying to tell us that his base is wearing away. I don't see evidence of that, you know, personally. I mean, he, I think he, you know, Trump has been real smart. He, you know, he's going to go to Phoenix. Uh, the mayor there is a Democrat. He says, please don't come. You know, we're, we really need to be healing at this time, and we don't really want you there. But on the other hand, we can't stop you from coming because you're going to rent a facility and, and all of this. And it, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's just kind of, it's kind of a funny thing now. It's like, oh, we have, to, we have to have this national healing. Please don't come, President. And, you know, because when, when, when Trump goes to Arizona, I mean, he's going to deliver a very, you know, popular message of some sort. He's going to get people all excited about that. It's going to be a very pro-America, pro, America, pro it, it's, it's going to do a lot of things. But, you know, if you're a Democrat in Phoenix, you're like, okay, well, let me go back to short, let me go and dip into these other things to try to downplay this and say, you really can't come here because we're really, really troubled. But it's Phoenix. <laughs> the, the president won Arizona. Uh, I think pretty big. Yeah. Um, this is not the first time a Democrat politician or the media has underestimated the president. They did it all last fall. Um, and when they were proven wrong, you could see it on their faces on the television coverage of election night. Uh, they underestimate him. They don't understand. First of all, they don't understand that people support him at all. And they didn't learn in November that people support him. Um, and they don't understand why. And so when they do this, when they, you know, when they have a, a politician, a mayor say, don't come to Arizona, um, it's, uh, presumably this rally, as they all are, is going to be um, very well attended, very popular. And, you know, the mayor likely is not the next morning will, will be a little embarrassed uh, um, the same way they were on election night 2016. Yeah, so I, I, it's just it's just kind of funny how these these Democratic politicians react to this. Um, I do want to talk briefly, at least, about you know some of the other kerfuffle or other things that are going on there. Which was so the president had uh, you know he, he's had these trade councils, business councils, whatever. Uh, lots of CEOs from major corporations were a part of it. It was you know when he when he put these things together, I thought my initial reaction was like, great, you know, I mean, and and I and they. I do believe that the you know the, all these CEOs they looked at you know Trump as a business person they thought oh he's going to be a big you know pro business president we want to be on board with this we want to help uh, facilitate pro business policies in the administration uh, but they started you know they started you know just abandoning ship after Charlottesville and the statements to the point where you know they don't now the councils don't exist anymore uh, but I thought it was. I don't know. I, I very politically correct, very you know, very kind of a chicken-hearted attitude or something like that on the part of the CEOs. They're, they're like, oh wait a minute, that that remark, those remarks say, oh I can't be tied to that because our shareholders or people who buy our products are going to be offended by this. I don't know. I just thought it was they they just turned tail and ran. I thought it was really cowardly. It, it was, and it was stupid. Um, go look at any one of those companies. Um, and how much do they spend on lobbying? They spend 
you know, American corporations spend billions on lobbying every year, but each one of those companies likely spends millions, if not tens of millions, on lobbying the government every year. And when your CEO has, when you're spending $10 million on lobbying and your CEO has direct access to the president and gives that up, that's not for the shareholders because the shareholders, they understand the ROI on influencing politics and policy. And that's why they, they invest so heavily in lobbying. And, and, and that was free for them to be on that council, to have direct access to the president. And they voluntarily gave it up. That was stupid. Um, the other piece of this is it might have been a little bit folly on the president's part to have this council in the first place because these are these are liberal left-leaning CEOs and he gave them an opportunity to embarrass him I, th that was the, their plan all along they always wanted to find some moment where they could publicly leave the, the you know the council and um, and so you know that that was a little bit of a strategic error on on the part of the White House. Um, but certainly, if I'm a shareholder in one of those countries, I, uh, one of those companies, I wonder, hey, why are we spending all this money on lobbying if we're going to give up access to the Oval Office? Yeah, that's a, that's an excellent point there too. And the, you know, and the thing, one of the, one of the things that makes me kind of chuckle at this too is that so the you know the Merck CEO. He leaves. You know, he's one of the first to leave, and so, the, so then Trump goes and attacks him about the drug prices. So, now, you know, when when you're the CEO of a major drug company, I mean, this is one of the this is a this is a PR nightmare for you in the sense of you you don't want the image of being known or being thought of as a price gouger with your you know with your medicine, and all of this stuff. And as long as he remained on the council, they, they were going to be at least on reasonably good terms. As soon as he ditched the president, the president just opened up. And, and I think that stings a little bit for them is to do that. Uh, you know, and, and we also had, you know, Kevin Plank, who's locally, you know, the Under Armour guy. And, you know, and I have a lot of respect in general for, for, for Plank because he's a University of Maryland graduate like I am. And you know he built a fabulous business. It's it's having some issues now, profitability-wise. But uh, I kind of was thinking like, just now as thought ran through my head is that Kevin Plank could have gotten the entire White House under I mean, outfitted with Under Armour somehow in some way. That would have been great. Or like, the Olympic team. Yeah, yeah, you, you, national just, team. you just blew it, man. <laughs> well, um, they forgot. Like the mayor of Phoenix forgot. Like the media forgot that President Trump has the support of the people. He won the election. Um, he's got, what, 36 million Twitter followers. You're right. It stings, and they underestimate him at their own peril every time. Yeah, no. All right. Steve Bannon, also in the news. You know, he's kind of been that, that the guru that the media has been trying to figure out. Uh, this interview pops up. And uh, so there's a lot of discussion back and forth. I mean, I was listening to Rush uh, yesterday and talking about, uh, you know, th throwing the administration really under the bus on the on the foreign policy with North Korea and things like that. You, you see you see references that it's really more. I guess it was maybe uh, Scarborough called him President Bannon uh, and things like that. Uh, wh what are your thoughts about Bannon and his future in the White House? I mean, or is this just another one of these? things that happens in the media that's not really going to amount to much. We'll see. I, I, mean, I, I think even the president used the phrase, we'll see. Um, Which wasn't exactly a vote of confidence. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, um, I, I, I'm no hater of Steve Bannon, but, I, you know, I think, how could you make that mistake? Um, politicians and their communicators, their communications directors, uh, this, you know, the, the the practice of getting, you know, of telling a reporter we are on or off the record at the beginning of the conversation, is th th that's lesson number one. Um, that you know, uh, uh, reporters uh, they get aggravated all the time because in in the course of a even a social conversation with them, as somebody involved with politics, you, you know, you sort of pause every three or four minutes and say we're still off the record, right? Um, that is absolutely a rule practiced in the breach. And for Steve Bannon um, to make that mistake, uh, Scaramucci made the same mistake. Um, how, you know, how, how could you do that? It, it, it damages the president. It damages his agenda. 
Um, and it's it's a really amateur mistake, not something I expected from the former president of Breitbart News. Right. I mean, it's not like you know, it's not like he's a rookie or just a novice, you know, at at this type of thing. They should know better. I mean, um, and I think I told this to Rob last week, and I've said this for for months. Is the the White House communications team and you know what goes on there sometimes makes me want to pull my hair out because I just think that they're not as on message, or at least they don't seem to be talking about strategy and how to how to keep these things you know together as much coordinated as much as it should be uh, yeah yeah look with reporters you have to re- you have to emphasize and you have you have to do check back and say yeah we are still you know, remember this is still off the record because they're, otherwise they're going to consider everything you say on the record and then you know you get the ban and result like that or and worse uh, so and, and that's not a big mystery no, anybody. <laughs> that, that that's not a. Uh, everybody knows that. Uh, who who, if if you run into reporters and and you do at the White House in the hallways all the time, you know that that's on the tip of your tongue. Yeah. So I it's just it, it is kind of shocking. And you know, Bannon has been around the block. He's run a lot of enterprises besides Breitbart, and and that should that should never have, have happened uh, at all with him. Um, Hope Hicks, I guess. Is she is she like basically kind of the acting communications director, or is she going to get the full time job? I mean, what do you hear exactly? Uh, I'm, I'm not, I, you know. Um, one one point of view you could have is, you know, it, it's not a job that anybody keeps for very long in the first place in any White House, and so whether it's acting or permanent, <laughs> she has the powers of the role, she has the title. Um, and, and so I'm not really sure what the difference is, you know, how long her tenure is, um, I'm not sure is affected by whether her title is acting or not. I, th- I think her tenure is going to be determined by how well she does. Um, if she crushes it, which I hope she does, um, then uh, she'll have the job for as long as she wants it. If, if, if she struggles with the, 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 the challenge, the size of the challenge, then she'll have it for, for a short term. But um, I'm rooting for her. Uh, I um, I love the fact that she's young and the fact that she's a woman and the fact that the president trusts her. I think these are all assets that she brings to the table that 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 will mean that she will do well at the job. Um, and and other than that, I I guess we'll watch and and, and hope. Yeah. So you know this this position has gotten a lot more scrutiny because it's been more of a revolving door. Uh, you know. In six, you know, six, seven months. I mean, we've seen a lot of people. We're seeing a lot of people kind of go through this thing, so it has kind of focused a lot more attention, definitely for me and as well as the media. I mean, you know, what kind of person really needs to fill that role? I mean, Hope, as you said, I mean, she's young. She doesn't have a huge amount of political experience compared to someone else they could bring in that does. But is that is that actually maybe more of a, a positive than a negative that she does she doesn't she won't be carrying a certain amount of baggage with her and she'll have maybe a little more freedom. But it is you know the, the president is you know trusting a 28 year old woman in that position. It's pretty remarkable. Well, uh, we've tried people with political experience. <laughs> we've tried people with media experience. Um, let's try somebody who the president has confidence in. Yeah. I'm not sure necessarily that the president ever had very high confidence in in the other folks, the, the folks that were in and of D.C. Um, Hope Hicks has been with him a long time. She's been with him since the very beginning. Um, at the at, you know she was with the Trump organization, but then she was she was traveling with him for political events um, long before he was even a candidate, um, and and. She has his confidence, which may be the key to success in this job. After all, uh, he's just as much communications director as she is. And if uh, he trusts her, they're going to work better together than, um, than he has worked with the other communications directors. She also, she's behind the scenes. And um, we, we know that none of the other communications directors in this White House have been behind the scenes. So there's some... Uh, some very different markers to this one, um, and maybe that'll mean um, a very different, a much higher level of success. Well, we can we can only hope so for that. Um, 
We're gonna we'll go we'll go down south here. We had uh, so we had a couple of elections, uh, special elections, one in uh, Alabama. That's probably the one that's more key than the one in Utah. That was Utah being such a Republican state. It was just a matter of which Republican, and you know that that's going to be a pretty easy thing. Alabama. I mean, it's I think from you know from the st- standpoint of the Senate seat, I think that's a pretty looks to be a pretty safe Senate seat overall. But it was an interesting battle because you had three guys running who were all trying to kind of jockey on the Trump position and try to figure out who was more Trump than the other. You have uh, Luther Strange, who's uh, actually, you know, I'll call him the incumbent senator because he, you know, he's sitting in session seat at this point. but he finished second to Judge Roy Moore, which I thought was kind of interesting. I, I don't follow Alabama politics all that you know, closely, but you know, Judge Moore has been a uh, quite a. Uh, I'll say he's I'll say he's been a controversial figure on the whole Ten Commandments issues, and he's had he's had some battles down there, and uh, he, I, there, there's a certain amount of respect I think he deserves because I don't think he takes any guff for sure. Uh, and he has a very loyal following. Yeah, and so so he's the you know the question for me. So he had forty percent of the vote. Uh, Strange had thirty two, uh, you know, and that left Brooks with what twenty eight. So you know, does that you know, are the Brooks people more likely to go to more? I mean, he's in a strong position. If he holds that, he doesn't need a whole lot more to win this seat. It would seem that way. Um, but for whatever reason, the Beltway media didn't pay much attention to Roy Moore. Uh, they were more fascinated by the Mo Brooks versus Luther Strange piece of this, who was going to finish second, um, as if whoever finished second was guaranteed to win. But I think it's clear that Roy Moore um, has a good shot at this thing. Uh, Luther Strange is the incumbent, and you would think, okay, well, he's just the incumbent because he was appointed by the governor. Maybe that doesn't mean as much. Well, what it meant this time was money. Um, and he's got it. He's got it from D.C. He's got it from the super PACs. He's got it from the majority leader. He's got it from the NRSC. Um, he's got he's got money. And so uh, his incumbency meant a lot, even though um, he was he's only been there for a matter of months and he was appointed by the governor. So we'll see. Uh, now we're down to Roy Moore versus Luther Strange. Um, we wish Congressman Brooks well. He was a great congressman. Uh, but but now we've got this race between Moore and Strange, and Strange has the D.C. money, and um, sometimes automatically my heart lies with the opposite candidate from the D.C. money. Right. So that was going to be part of my next question, really, was just that, you know, he is now tied in D.C. I mean, there, there are a lot of people who don't. Who think he's uh, you know he's too aligned with Mitch McConnell like that, it, and McConnell's you know has you know he's struggling a little bit you know with with Trump and some you know after having you know not getting you know any repeal and replace of Obamacare through uh, you know th- you know on, during the summer yet, here yet 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 I mean that's it's not over yet but it it was it, it didn't come out real well for them uh, mm-hmm. overall and uh, so yeah I mean I I. If I had to say anything, I'd, I'd go with you on this. Is like I do. I, maybe that maybe that was why I had that that funny love for the Confederacy when I was a kid. Is I was always with the opposition. <laughs> maybe that's been part of my part of my life for 50 plus years or whatever. I don't know. So yeah, I mean, I would it would it be would it be a disaster if Rory Moore got elected? I don't think so for Alabama. No, I, I I I would rather look at it the opposite way. If you if you track. In, in these candidates where it's a more establishment candidate, in these races where it's a more establishment candidate versus a more conservative candidate, and you say, okay, in any given race, um, who had the more money from corporate interest, from PACs, more money that originated in Washington, D.C.? I would say 100% of the time, if it's the, the candidate with less D.C. money that wins, they become a more conservative congressman or senator and if it's the candidate with more dc money they become a less conservative more moderate congressman or senator i think that is a probably a rule for the last two decades um that's part of what's wrong with our congress that's part of why we didn't get obamacare repealed yet um was because you know we we have some of these people who got elected um using 
PAC money, super PAC money, and that means they, they have corporate interest. Yeah, no, I think you, you're right about that. Um, so I had just mentioned Obamacare. So there was another, what was it, the CBO came out and talked about if the uh, subsidies are, are pulled, we're going to get, what, 20 25% increase in premiums. I know Heritage has looked a lot at these kinds of things. It, it just, once again, it seems like the media is all whipped up about this particular narrative. They, they, love, they love this kind of stuff, these reports, because uh, it puts... They try, they're trying to put the Republicans on their heels about repeal and replace. Yeah, they're, they're, um, there are two things we should watch in terms of the insurance market. One is the price of premiums, and those are on the way up. They have been on the way up since Obamacare was passed. We're talking in the triple-digit percentages in almost every jurisdiction. Um, and then the other thing we should, mark, we should watch is particularly participation in the marketplace. So how many choices do you have as a consumer for insurance products to buy in a particular state or a particular county? Um, that marker is on the way down. We've got something like 2,500 counties in this country where you can only buy one, uh, one company's health insurance product. Um, that makes it look like the insurance markets are, are in disarray. And so my fear is what you have happening, especially in the Senate with Chairman Lamar Alexander and Democrat Senator Patty Murray, you have them looking to bail out the insurance companies. And they're saying, okay, well, prices are going up and participation is going down. We need to, to, to flood this marketplace with federal dollars on the order of 120 or $180 billion. The problem with that is the insurance companies are enjoying record profits. If they are the last people that need a bailout, they are raking it in hand over fist. So um, Obamacare has created a regulatory scheme, which they love, by the way. The insurance companies love this regulatory scheme because they get to charge up and up and up and up and up and they get to make more and more and more profits. So no, let's not bail out insurance companies because the markets look this way. Let's fix the regulatory scheme that allowed uh, this situation to exist in the first place. It's, it's no wonder they're defending it because they're rolling around in money. Yeah, it's not like, uh, it's not like if you take away the subsidy that you know that all of a sudden these companies are going to have to file for bankruptcy or anything like that they are doing very well and they've always priced their product to make sure that they do very well i mean that's that's how you stay in business because you're trying to price your product this way you know obamacare scheme of where they can't even rate the you know the people based on their health history anymore creates that you know that great unknown i mean i've got a, i've got a meeting next week with you know my insurance agent uh, for the insurance coverage here, health insurance coverage here, I have no idea what I'm what I'm going to be facing, but I dread it. You know, I'm, I dread this more than anything else in my life. Just about is like, what are we going to get hit with this time around? You know, what are we going to have to trim to be able to afford it? It's just you know, all those promises of Obamacare. You know, your premiums are going to go down twenty five hundred dollars and all this kind of stuff. You know, whatever happened to that? No, it, it, Obamacare has ruined the insurance markets. It's enriched the insurance companies, and the last thing they need is a bailout. But I'm afraid that's what they're going to get this September. So that's, that's something we as conservatives really have to be watching. All right. Last thing we're going to get to before we close here will be uh, Miami basically bailing out of being a sanctuary city because they, the, they want that federal money. And uh, we've talked about this on the program here before uh, about these sanctuary cities and things like this. And in particular, just really, you know, and we talked about last week about Chicago and their defiance and suing the U.S., uh, the government. So, look, to me, it's like, okay, you follow federal law, the money is there. You know, you know, Sessions has made it very clear that you want, you want to, you, you don't want to follow federal law. We will withhold money from these grants and these programs and things like that. You know, of course, Rahm Emanuel's out there going like, well, the safety of the police and all this kind of stuff is at stake. Uh, Miami wasn't happy about it, but they made a decision. I know Heritage has written about this too. Uh, Where are the police safer, Miami or Chicago? Yeah. 
I'm pretty sure it's Miami. Yeah. Uh, actually, I'm not pretty sure. Well, I'm 100 percent positive it's Miami. Um, and uh, you know, um, you mean to tell me, an Attorney General Jeff Sessions' policy worked? This this is not a story the media is covering because it's a policy that is working. We've got a Miami now that's willing to cooperate with federal law enforcement, which is a situation we absolutely have to have uh, for the rule of law and the security situation in this country. And that's thanks to a policy that President Trump and Attorney General Jeff Sessions have enacted. It is working. This will not be the last city to change their mind about their sanctuary policies. This will be the first of many, many. Yeah, I think you're, yeah, I think that's true. Is that you? You see that you, 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 we have, we are going to have that, you know, that kind of dichotomy. We'll have Miami doing this. We've got Chicago doing this. I think more people are going to look at Miami. You just, you just needed that first domino kind of to fall there. And I think others will say, yeah, you know something, you know, what Chicago is doing is stupid. They're not going to get anywhere with that. They're going to lose all this money. Uh, in the meantime, you know, once again, it's very clearly laid out by Attorney General Sessions, and, and Miami is going to get in line. Other cities will eventually fall in line, uh, and we do have to have this for our security. Or, you know, the, the whole sanctuary city policy has just been you know, totally absurd uh, to begin with. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Are there any, is any last words you want to say before we close? God bless America. All right. That's a, those are good words. All right. Well, thank you, Tommy, for joining me today. Thanks for coming over here. Thanks to our, our, our listeners and our viewers for joining me today on the Bias Buzz podcast. Brian should be back next week. He's, uh, I think he's somewhere in, I think he's in Tulsa, Oklahoma at this point, driving back. Uh, and so we'll see him next week. But have, uh, have a great weekend. And uh, by the time we see you for the Pius Post podcast next week, we'll have already seen the total, that whole solar eclipse thing. So I'm, I don't have any glasses, so I won't be part of it. Thanks a lot. See you next week.